Attorney General Steve Marshall. Who is he? What does he do? What's his office focused on? Well, we're going to cover all of that today, and I think you're going to be really encouraged as you begin to get to know who your Attorney General is. He talks a little bit about his life story, how he became a district attorney, and then later on to Attorney General, and how that really seems to be the calling on his life, uh, as well as what the Attorney General's office is there for and the things they're focused on. One of the big issues we talk about is criminal justice. Uh, the National Attorney General Merrick Garland uh, issued a thing where he's trying to get rid of mandatory minimum sentences. And while that seems to be um, in the air with criminal justice reform and everything else, Attorney General Marshall says not so fast and let me tell you why. So you're gonna wanna tune in for that. And for our paying members, we've got a great segment um, where we talk about the dangers of the abortion pill and what that means and what his office is going to do to stop it. We have an incredible culture here in the state of Alabama, but our politics and public policy don't reflect the people of Alabama. Media drives culture. Culture is what drives politics and public policy. Welcome everyone to 1819 News, the podcast. I'm Brian Dawson, CEO of 1819 News and host of this here podcast. Got a really exciting episode for you guys today. We're going to be jumping in to a conversation with the Attorney General of Alabama, Steve Marshall. Uh, I think it's imperative that uh, we, the people, as we are learning more and more that we are the cavalry, uh, we talked about that on the last episode in depth, um, freedom is hard, uh, we need to take responsibility for our government, and we can't even do that if we don't know um, who does what in the government. So we're going to be talking to Steve about what is the Attorney General, we're going to talk a little bit about his story and who he is, and then we're going to get into some hot topics like criminal justice uh, and some stuff that uh, the um, National Attorney General uh, Merrick Garland is talking about. We'll um, possibly jump into some of the abortion pill stuff, ESG. And then for our paying members, as a thank you to those who are financially supporting 1819 News, we're going to talk about COVID response, what we did wrong, and what we can do to right some of those things. And so really excited about that. But before we jump into the content, uh, I got to tell you guys, we need you to join the fight. What, is, what does Brian mean? What is he talking about? Join the fight. We need you guys to financially support the work we're doing. We are a nonprofit news entity um, created to be on behalf of the people. Therefore, uh, the best incentive structure is when our bills are being paid by the people. And so that's why we exist. We're doing the hard work of investigative journalism, informing the people of Alabama, and, and telling stories that celebrate what's good, true, and beautiful about the state for you guys. So please go on there uh, where you see the the promptings to to join, whether it's $5, $10, $18.19, $18.19 club, or whatever level you guys feel comfortable giving at, please do that. Um, and you'll have access to exclusive content, member only content, really cool merch. But again, that's not why you should do it. Those things are cool. Um, do it because, you know, you're supporting the great work that we're doing. And so there is my shameless plug on that. Uh, and I always have to tell you, if you're watching this on YouTube, don't because they suck and they always cancel our stuff because we're telling the truth and YouTube and the truth don't get along. So, you know, they're basically the Gestapo on what's allowed to be said and not. So develop habits of going to Rumble, Apple Podcasts and Spotify to get all of your content from 1819 News so you have an uninterrupted experience. I think that covers all of my pre-show stuff. And now for why you tuned in. Attorney General Steve Marshall, thank you so much for taking the time to come see hey, us. Hey, it's great us. to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Absolutely. Um, you know, and I'm not just buttering you up here, and, and we've, we've had a conversation before. Um, you know, as far as a lot of the statewide uh, representatives we have in the state, uh, there's a lot of disappointment from me. Um, you were one of the people, uh, one of the few people, I think is just doing a really, really good job um, not getting what you want done, but I think you have a good uh, feel for the pulse of what the people of Alabama want. We are a extremely conservative state. We have values and traditions that we hold dear. Uh, and a lot of times in, in the legislature and, and in other areas, I don't feel like those things are being represented well. Uh, but you're you're right on the money over and over and over again. So I want to say thank you for that. Uh, you're kind. You know, it's interesting. You get inside that Montgomery bubble yeah. and you lose sight of what's important to people. And I was talking the other day, and actually I'll go back to yeah. Inauguration Day and really tried to share a vision for what I only think we're about in the AG's office and what I think my role is. And 
and and shockingly criticized a little bit for yeah. the, the the narrative. But what was important to me to convey, not only to the people of Alabama, but also people that were sitting around listening to that speech that day, is that we are a republic that is powered by the people, mm. that we are to be responsive to the people, and that's where true power rests. And if we're not communicating, number one, it's obviously critically uh, a failure. But if we're not responsive, mm. then that's where we're not serving our role. And so I uh, said this the other day, I learn more at the grocery store when people talk to me than I do anywhere else. Yeah. And and when they come up to me and say, are we really like fighting about who's a boy and who's a girl? Or are we really allowing the Biden administration to dictate X, Y, and Z? Or yeah. why are six-year-old girls getting killed in their bedrooms sleeping at night and we're not addressing the violent crime problem. I mean, those are the things that I need to be listening to and be responsive to. And it's why it's nice to be able to remind folks of that every once in a while. Yeah. Let's, let's dive in. One of the, the, the big things that we like to do on this podcast is we like to get to know people. Um, you know, whether it's a state official like yourself, whether it's Rick Burgess, whoever it is, <clears throat> I want people to get to know, to know you better by the time the podcast is over, not just what you think. So talk a little bit about who you are, where were you born, how, how did you become the attorney general, um, your your story arc in five yeah, minutes. Yeah, so <laughs> passionate believer in Jesus Christ, number yeah. one, is Amen. is the way I define who I am and what I'm about. Um, married to a remarkable woman, Tammy, who's been a delight in my life. Many are aware a little bit of the circumstances of my past and unfortunately lost my bride before. And Tammy's been an amazing addition and very, very blessed. You know, I'm obviously not the most romantic guy because we spent our honeymoon in Prattville. <laughs> so there you go. You know, that's, nice that probably, probably tells you a lot about me. But um, I'm an Alabama native, uh, born in Atmore. Uh, daddy's from uh, URI. You know, it was interesting when I first became AG, I was on uh, Sean Sullivan's show down in, in Mobile. And they were just like, tell me about who you are and what you're about. And I was like, hey, mom's from Atmore. Dad was from URI. And Somebody called in, right, as we finished the interview, and he goes, hey, that AG is truthful because he knows how to pronounce Uriah. You know, I mean, that's, that's important. You know, you got to get it right. It's not Uriah. Yeah. But um, so sort of the roots uh, for me are in South Alabama. Um, my dad was a sporting goods salesman. Mom was a secretary. We did a little bit of the SEC tour, if you will. Yeah. Dad ran a sporting goods store in Mobile when I was a kid. We lived there for about six years. Then we moved uh, outside of Orlando. Then we moved to uh, outside of Atlanta, moved over to South Carolina, came back to Georgia, eventually did most of my high school up in North Carolina. Um, you know, learned early on, my first job was working in a tobacco field and tobacco barn. Mm. Uh, I can tell you that was something not only that was a reinforcer to me about the value of the public education, but I learned a lot from the people that I worked with in those fields yeah. and, and some unique stories. I mean, look, when you're sitting around eating out of a can of beanie weenies or a vein of sausages, yeah. you know, in the hot sun, you know, you, you're able to share stories. But but I can tell you, I was impacted profoundly by the people that even in that moment in my life just sort of shared their own life stories and, and knew the value of family and what was important to them and what hard work meant. Mm. And, and I think, that stayed with me. You know, yeah. it's been me and my summers in URI. Granddaddy was the butcher at the general store and grew soybeans and watermelon and, uh, and other crops there. And would spend a lot of time just kind of hanging out. And, you know, first of all, his generation was the greatest generation that we've yeah. seen and shared stories from me from when he served in the military and um, was just sort of a reminder of where I'm from and who I'm about. But uh, went to the University of North Carolina, uh, Chapel Hill guy. Uh, came back home to law school, though. Um, yeah. You know, when I was trying to figure out kind of where I went, you know, told you a little bit about kind of our family history, a little nomadic. Some people kind of said a little bit like a military brat. But um, Alabama always was home because that's where the extended family was. It's where I spent a lot of time, you know, with, with family over the years. But just kind of felt compelled to come back home and 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 frankly, it's been probably the best decision in my adult life is being able to do that. Um, started out working big firm here in uh, in Birmingham. Uh, great people that I had a chance to be able to work with. 
But I didn't, I was the first person to go to college in my family. And I didn't grow up around lawyers. What what motivated me to to get into the practice of law was that I saw that that lawyers had the tools to do things for people. Mm. And when I was working for the big firm, again, good training, but I didn't feel like that was where I was getting. Yeah. Um, and so went out and and moved to Gunnersville, which is an amazing place up in Marshall County. Um, and really just sort of did a little bit of everything uh, for about six years and uh, eventually became uh, the DA there. Kind of a story as to why it was really kind of a defining moment for me. When you're a young lawyer in a small town, you get uh, responsible for handling indigent criminal cases. And I was appointed to represent uh, a gentleman that uh, was a multi-time felon uh, the crime for which I was, or the case that I was appointed on him for, he was playing checkers with another area guy in Gunnersville, and they had been drinking and apparently were betting. Uh, and my client lost and had to pay the guy money for losing in checkers. And so he did what most people would do when you lose money playing checkers is you go and get your rifle out of your, your truck and you shoot the guy in the back, of course, right? I mean, that's, that's the yeah. responsible thing. And so... Fortunately, the guy lived, number yeah. one, but but he's charged with attempted murder. And so under habitual offender, because he was a two-time convicted felon, had a Class A felony in his background, he was facing life without, uh, was going to be the only sentence. And so I remember telling him, it's like, there's no defense here. You know, you shot a guy in the back. It wasn't self-defense. There's no justification for it. The district attorney had offered life, and I said, you need to take this. This is a chance for you at some point to, to get out of jail. And he just said, no, I don't want to do it. I want to go to trial. I trust you. And took him in front of the judge and said, judge, you have no ability other than to sentence him to life without if he's convicted. There's an offer on the table less than that. I have instructed him based on the facts that I believe he ought to take this offer. I need you to be able to make sure he understands. And judge went through it with him again and explained to him what the law of self-defense was and what it would take to be able to prove it. And, uh, and he said, I, I trust my lawyer. I want to go forward. And so we tried the case and witness got up there and testified exactly what I described. He gets shot in the back and why it took place. I put my client up there. He gave his um, statement and we argued the case to the jury and they came back and they found him not guilty. And I remember uh, my client shook my hand and he walked out uh, the door uh, wearing his Auburn jacket, by the way. And uh, fortunately, I don't think he's ever been in trouble again. But I sat at that table and I said, what have I done? You know, I I gave him the representation that I should as a lawyer. um, Didn't do anything otherwise within the bounds of the law. Held the state to the responsibility of proving their case to beyond a reasonable doubt. But I just said, this is not for me. Yeah. And it really was one of those defining moments about what I thought I wanted to be able to do with my life and or my professional life. And, you know, Mark Twain said, what, the two most important days of your life are the day you were born and the day you figured out why. Yeah. That was kind of my why moment. Amen. And, and so, you know, from that, I just said, I want to be the voice for victims and for law enforcement. And so when the opportunity to become the district attorney of Marshall County uh, presented itself, I mean, I jumped at it. It yeah. was not just being completely candid. It was not the best financial decision I've ever made in my life. Not that I wasn't paid appropriately, but I would have made a lot more money in private practice. But it was the right thing to do. And it has been uh, since that time. It was 2001. Uh, Now, I did some prosecution for cities, and and that kind of got a little of the taste for me. But, But the ability to be that voice and that advocate has, has been what has motivated me. And I'm sure, I, I know I'm going tangential no, on the sure, story, yeah. but one of the most impactful moments for me was uh, I took on the child sexual abuse cases right off the bat, would do the violent crimes in those, and those are hard cases. Yeah. And, you know, it's if you think about those, and most folks don't, but we ask a child to talk about their first sexual experience in front of 12 strangers called a jury. I mean, nobody wants to raise their hand and do that anyway, right? And we ask them to do that and then get called a liar on cross-examination. And so um, there was a young lady that um, 
was sexually abused by a step-grandfather. I mean, the typical story, grandmother leaves, he does bad things to her, but says, if you tell, you know, your grandma's going to believe me and not you, uh, you won't be able to come over here anymore. And she allows it to go on for a while. And finally, um, as a result of a, a really good training program, understanding good touch and bad touch, she, she discloses. And so uh, we're able to have a child advocacy center that worked with her, good investigative work, but they're still tough cases. I mean, they're all circumstantial by and large. You don't have DNA from touching. Yeah. And so we get her in the office to begin with. She can't look me in the eye. I mean, and I get it. I'm a total yeah. stranger. I'm a man. Yeah. All those things. And and yet we said, we're going to help you. And her grandmother chooses the step-grandfather over her. She's kind of shunned by her family as well. Her mom and dad are supportive, but beyond that, really not anybody else. And so we try the case, and she was really brave in what she did. That's why I tell people all the time, kids are my heroes in those moments. Yeah. And she testifies, and then he ends up coming in and saying it's all a lie and you know gives reasons why and then talks about his military career and why he's such a fine American. And uh, Anyway, the jury found him guilty, which in and of itself is a good thing. He's still yeah. there. But she, that little girl and I were uh, together afterwards, kind of in a back room in the courthouse there in Albertville. And she looked at me and she said, I want to thank you. I was like, you don't need to thank me. My job is to convict him. And so that's what I did. She goes, no, I want to thank you for believing in me. And then she gave me a hug and she walked out. Man, I cried like a baby. I wow. mean, just because what I understood was that in the role I had as a prosecutor, kind of in the global sense of what we can do as criminal justice professionals, I didn't just hold an offender accountable. I changed that girl's life for the better because she was able to be reaffirmed through that verdict that she told the truth and that they believed her. And so it's one of the things that when I have the privilege of being able to talk to our prosecutors around the state who are are many of which are dear, dear dear friends, um, I got to remind them about that opportunity because you can get beat down in the criminal justice system. Um, there's a lot of volume there, a lot of sadness, but yet you're given that opportunity to make that lasting impact in people's lives. And so, again, it's why being DA was a remarkable experience, but it was also great training ground for being AG because when I became AG, which has almost now been six years ago, um, it was to me, and and I'll tell you a little bit naively, walked into it thinking you're kind of the super DA and that you had statewide criminal jurisdiction, and historically the role of attorney general has been state's top cop. Um, But what I learned is, man, it's so much more. Yeah. And that you are given the privilege, and it's really how the role of the AG has morphed over time, is is literally if you go back to the history of it back in colonial times before we were even a country, Virginia had the first AG, and it was the person who was designated to sit with victims and advise them on how to pursue their criminal cases. They weren't even in court. They just told them what to do. And that's been kind of the perpetual view um, of what the attorney general does. But now, it's kind of like I talked about again in inauguration, you become that last line of defense— against federal overreach. And, and mm. you know, talking about federalism is not the sexiest thing, right? I mean, people no. don't want to dive into to policy, but yet the 10th Amendment's there for a reason. And it really has fallen to the attorneys general to give that meaning. Yeah. And that we have to embrace the fact that there are limited federal powers that are granted by the Constitution and everything else is supposed to fall to the states. Reach. And it's why when, you know, we talk about COVID, and and particularly to me, that illustrated this principle clearly, is how far could the federal government invade the historic space of a state government to deal with issues of public health? And so while um, you take our our COVID cases, you know, particularly around the vaccines, or I tell people all the time, if you don't have to wear a mask on a plane, thank an AG, because we're the ones that won that case, right? But but you know, so much of that litigation was not about the efficacy of the vaccine. We can talk about that yeah. you know, as a separate issue. But it solely had to do with, can the federal government dictate public health policy in Alabama? Yeah. And our response was no. And, and fortunately, we were able to prevail on almost all of those cases. Wow. 
But so much of what we do now is really centered around what is the actual role of the federal government versus the states. And in some ways, I feel like that my job is really twofold. One is to try to work to keep Alabamians safe. And the second is to keep Alabamians free. Mm. Free meaning that we are defending our sovereignty to make certain decisions. We had, you know, a wonderful victory just uh, last week in the 11th Circuit over this ARPA money. I don't know if you followed that at all, where, you know, billions of dollars obviously yeah. coming out. But but it had a restriction that said, oh, by the way, state of Alabama, we're going to give you all these dollars, but you can't reduce directly or indirectly your taxes for a three-year period. And by the way, tell me an indirect tax. I hadn't seen that yeah. one yet. It's all, yeah. it, it seems to be all on yeah. our pocketbooks, right? But but yet um, the ability to spend in tax is solely a state responsibility. Yeah. And so for us, it was, okay, federal government, if you're going to make this decision, frankly, to bankrupt our, our country by all this money, yeah. I mean, again, let's yeah. don't yeah. know the policy, but if you're going to send us this, yeah. you're not going to tie our hands and we're able to get a— strong opinion out of Judge Kugler here yeah. as a judge in the Northern District of Alabama. And the 11th Circuit just affirmed that and said, no, federal government, you went too far. Yeah. That is solely within the power of the state, and we're going to remove that provision and that restriction moving forward. And so, you know, my growth as an attorney general um, has been really kind of beginning to, to understand that. But um, but that, that's far away from what you asked me. But so no, so, you're actually hitting everything I wanted. So, yeah, so, story and what yeah, you do. Yeah, and so so now, um, yeah, I got beautiful daughter Faith, uh, who is and continued to be a light in my life. And I'll tell you, it's not easy to grow up the kid of the DA, right? Yeah. I mean, it's just like you feel like you're kind of always in that that eye. Um, but she's you know the the light of my life, and got two boys now. John Mellon and Bennon that have entered my life, which has been good, by the way, because yeah. I'm like, you know, a sports guy, I'm an outdoors guy. And, you know, the, the daughter just didn't want to do that all the right. time. So now I get to talk hunting, get to talk sports with those yeah. guys. And so that's been good. And, and again, you know, just you know, enriched by a woman that loves me unconditionally and so very, very grateful about that. Love it. So there it is, guys. Uh, that's who Steve Marshall is. But what, what it is that he does is the attorney general, two pillars, making sure we're safe and making sure we're free. Uh, we live in a time when federal overreach is completely out of control. Your number two, Catherine Robertson, yeah, wrote an incredible paper for the Alabama Policy Institute uh, when she was there uh, on selling our sovereignty. And I think that's something that doesn't get talked about enough. And I'm so glad uh, that you're on the front lines uh, making sure that to the best of our ability that, that that's not happening here in Alabama. But, you know, and I give, give you an example of that, because we, we, we're we trying to remind legislators of that all the time. By the way, Catherine's amazing. Yeah. Very, very blessed. And, I, and I've got a remarkable team. I mean, yeah. that's, they, they, I'm just overwhelmed by the people that want to come. In fact, you know, we're interviewing a, a gentleman yesterday who works at a big law firm here, but wants to come work with us. And I was like, why? You know, it's not in your financial interest, whatever he goes. I want to be a part of this. Yeah. Man, that, that's, that's like strong for me. Yeah. But um, the school lunch program that we've been fighting recently, where now they want to be able to change the definition of sex to gender identity. And in a, a school lunch program that's designed to provide nutrition to lower-income children, successful program, we understand why. But yet, with the purse string, the federal government wants to impose their agenda on us in a way that they can't do in our state legislator and in the ballot box. Yeah. And it's just one example of many that we continue to fight where the use of federal dollars to influence state policies got to be rebuffed. Yeah. And it's one reason why I love what I do. Yeah. That's awesome. We got to hit this commercial break. Um, I want to make one more point before we do that. I think it's interesting. Um, the similarities kind of, again, what you do is way bigger and different than what I do, but there's a, a huge similarities. And I think um seems to happen um, with basically on the keeping a safe thing and holding people accountable. Uh, and then um, what we're doing with trying to do investigative journalism, make sure the state's aware of things that are going on and, and holding people accountable. And I think one of the things that happens, and we'll go into that in the next segment and kind of why I'm um, teasing this out there um, I, you know, I hear a lot of people complain, well, why isn't Steve looking at this? And why isn't Steve looking at that? And like, well, why isn't 1819 digging into this? It's like, man, we have limited resources and we have to have <laughs> right. priorities we have to absolutely hit. And I really love, uh, the priorities that your office has set forth. And that's what we're going to be talking about, uh, in the next segment. 
Um, so hold tight. Hey y'all, it's Allison Sinclair with Alabama Unfiltered. A lot of people ask me, what can I do to actually make a difference in DC and in my state government? And one of the most effective things you can do is write an old school letter to your elected officials. It seems super simple, but a written through the mail letter gets their attention much more than an email or a phone call. I use the Quick Letter app from my phone to write letters and it makes it so easy to write all of my representatives in DC and in our state a real letter in a matter of minutes. And so Quick Letter automatically determines your representatives and their mailing addresses. You write or dictate a letter on your phone and tap the name of every representative you want to receive that letter. And Quick Letter handles the delivery address, the return address, the greeting, the closing, the signature, the printing, stuffing, stamping, and placing your letter in the U.S. mail. Your governor, attorney general, state legislators, your U.S. senators, and congressmen need to hear from you. And it doesn't have to be elaborate. Actually, a brief, simple letter usually has the most impact. Send a quick letter today and every day. Go to quickletter.com, that's K-W-I-K, quickletter.com, or download the Quick Letter app today. Welcome back, guys. Thank you for tuning in after the commercial. And I want to talk about our sponsor, uh, Jim Hicks and Quick Letter and what he's done there. Uh, it's truly amazing. One of the, the best things we can do, and again, that theme that seems to be resounding right now is the fact that we are the cavalry. We need to take responsibility. Well, we have legislators uh, that are there to represent us. We have one who's here uh, in studio with us right now. And Jim has created an app that makes it super simple to be able to, to have your voice heard by those state officials and those those legislators uh, so that they can know what it is that you want. You know, sometimes there are uh, legislators who are out just to, you know, be there to get money from some sugar daddy or something like that. But overall, I think a lot of times when they initially go down there, they go down there for the right reasons and they they're not hearing from their constituents because their constituents are just throwing their hands in the air and saying, well, I'm not going to write them a letter. That's a waste of time. They're not going to read it. It's not true. Um, they do read them. Uh, they do want to hear from you. And um, it's your responsibility to make your voice heard. And Quick Letter makes that super simple. So go to the App Store, download the app, uh, put in your name and address, and it'll automatically tell you who all of from from the president all the way on down to your state representative, uh, everyone who is assigned to you based off of your geographical location. But you also have the option to write other people who may not be your representatives and let your voice be heard. Uh, they take care of all of the printing, packaging, stamping, addressing, all of that stuff. Uh, and it makes it super easy, starting at $1.99 a letter, and it goes down uh, with each letter you write. Uh, and if you write consistently, there'll only be a $1.49 a letter. It's about a buck over postage. You can't beat that. Um, we're moving, we're coming up on a legislative session where you are going to have a great opportunity to let your voice be heard, school choice, and all these other things that are really in the air right now. Let your representatives know what you think. Quick letter. App Store, download it, and get to writing. All right, back to where we were. That was a really incredible first segment, by the way. I love, oh, I love the story. I love um, getting to know you. And, and, and you know, I'm not the, the complete barometer of what my audience wants, but I know I've always wanted to know, you know, who is Steve Marshall and what does the AG do? And so I think um, that was really good and, and, and helpful. So uh, as I kind of teased out towards the end, um, you know, you have limited resources. You have to prioritize where you you know, attribute those resources so that you're, you know, hitting your mission and what it is that you exist for, um, and in the best way. And when we initially met, you had talked about some of your priorities. Um, I know ESG human trafficking, uh, I think, um, there was a couple others, but that you, you had a hyper-focus and you're doing great work on. And one of the things you do is criminal justice. And so Merrick Garland, it sounds like has sent out a press release where he's, um, having the conversation of re removing mandatory minimums. Uh, in this world with criminal justice reform being a really hot topic. And I think there's a lot of people that just in their heart want to feel like maybe they're helping prisoners. That's obviously near and dear to my heart. Mm -hmm. I, I used to be one of them prisoners. Um, but, you know, it, we can never um, do criminal justice reform at the expense of justice. Right. And then there can be there can be grave injustices that are happening within the system. And I think that's what we need to to point out and make sure isn't happening but we can't can't do things in such a way to where there's you know criminals are being released and out hurting people and so it's this this tough balance that you have to face all the time. Talk a little bit about uh, Merrick Garland and and his efforts to 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 do away with mandatory minimums and this whole yeah and he's doing it 
sort of in a de facto way. But you know, what's interesting to me, I told somebody the other day, it's amazing. Merrick Garland's now had the ability to do something I didn't think was possible, and that's to make Eric Holder look like a moderate. I mean, yeah. and that's kind of what's going on here. But you know, for <laughs> for almost forty years of policy, at the Department of Justice, they've said you charge the most serious offense that's provable. Yeah. And if you're not going to do it, then you need to be able to explain to your supervisor why not. One of the greatest tools that exists to be able to deal with the worst of the offenders are mandatory minimums in many of our drug cases. And one thing, and I think you and I have talked a little bit about it before, you know, what goes along in the drug trade is not just limited to the sale and distribution of fentanyl, methamphetamine, or whatever, but it also exacerbates violent crime and it has other uh, tentacles as well that are part of the criminal justice system. And to the extent that you have the ability to remove those worst offenders for a while, then you have the ability to sort of create a void and try to keep your community safer. And so, you know, back to my days as a DA, you know, I had many discussions when we were able to target and, uh, and identify kind of our worst of the worst locally. We knew that that federal tool was something that was better than what we had at the state level for a variety of reasons why we could make sure that they would serve more. But also uniquely is that we would extricate that person from the community as well in the sense that they may end up being in a federal prison in North Dakota. And it sounds harsh in some respects, but part of the reason why and what we still see today is that those in our penitentiary system are still able to regulate the drug trade from inside the walls, mm. which is scary in and yeah. of itself. But when you're in North Dakota, you probably can't have that same ability to do it. Yeah. And so I can't tell you the, the number of people that we've been able to use that law targeted on to get out of communities and to be able to make it safer. And so one of the things that goes back to the Ashcroft days is that sort of policy I told you about. Holder changed it a little bit and said, well, we need to look at mandatory minimums on a case-by-case basis, but yet he didn't change it. Jeff Sessions went back and responsibly said, let's go back to the old way. Well, Garland's memo the other day said, from this point forward, prosecutors, you can't charge a mandatory minimum unless you get supervisor's approval. And you got to be able to show these criteria are met before you can even go there to a supervisor. So if you're that line prosecutor, that's the direct message to say, we don't believe in mandatory minimums. And and so what's funny in some respects is, let's say Alabama, you know, I don't, there's 42 district attorneys. I don't control them. Now I can prosecute cases in their jurisdiction. I can do something in a, in a very uh, unique situation, maybe superintend, which means I can take a case away, but yet they they act as their own independent bodies. And so, you know, uniquely, you may see DAs with different priorities. I mean, look, we see that nationally with the DA in San Francisco or, you know, in New York. And we've seen Philadelphia. Yeah, we, we've seen what happens there, right? The, the, the bad guys begin to, to, to become uplifted. But here, when you're the Department of Justice, the Attorney General is the mothership to, to dictate policy across all of the spectrum of the federal system. And so what Garland has simply done is send that strong message that, we're not going to do these cases. And he does it under the guise of racial disparity in the application of those cases. And, and you know, that's a myth. Yeah, It's not a myth in the sense that we could just take statistics and see demographically what race somebody is in prison. But that doesn't tell the story of the application of the law to those individuals. You got to commit that crime to get there in the first place. Yes. And so, you know, it's interesting. Heather McDonald is one of my sort of, thought leaders in the area of criminal justice for your followers. I think yeah. they would love to see a what lot of name? Heather McDonald. Heather She's McDonald. A, a, uh, a fellow at the Manhattan Institute um, has written a book called the war on cops, for example. But, yeah. but she sort of helps dive into that data and says what it really means is that those on the left just kind of generically use this argument of demographic data to show what they want to describe as systemic racism and then the system it doesn't prove that at all. And in fact, that is such an overused term and it's part of what's been used to really beat down law enforcement across a country and being able to do their jobs. Um, but Garland's memo just perpetuates that myth. And so one of the things I think you're going to see is fewer really bad apples going away when they need to be gone out of communities. And when we think about in this city right here in Birmingham, where that could be a tool to be used by the U.S. Attorney's Office. I hope they'll still utilize it because Garland didn't completely say it can't be done, 
but it's truly sent the message that this is not where we need to be as a Department of Justice. And so one of the messages that I've had um, to, to legislators, and particularly some of the ones that are now coming in, is to say, let's step up. Yeah. You know, we need, if the federal government's going to back away from things that they have historically done, that Congress has given them the tools to do, then let's give Alabama prosecutors those same tools. And yeah. so we've been talking a little bit about uh, gang legislation, which I think is something that is important. We've talked about creating something similar to a RICO statute mm -hmm. here in the state, which 30 plus other states have. And let's find ways of really attacking fentanyl and, and allowing there to be some minimums relating to those who traffic in, in fentanyl. And so if the federal government's going to back away, then let's fill that void because the crime's not going away. The question is, are we going to create opportunities for us to have accountability on that front? And, you know, one of the things that, like, I'm, I'm an unabashed fan of Jeff Sessions. I'll just yeah. say that very, Absolutely. very clearly. And when Jeff came in as the uh, United States Attorney General, he identified rightfully that that 20-plus-year trend from Reagan's policies that had violent crime going at the right direction going down had begun to go the different direction. We can be wonderful discussion for an hour about why, yeah. but, I mean, you can take post-Ferguson and look at some of what's taken place about law enforcement kind of pulling back. Yeah. You know, when law enforcement retreats, that's not a good sign. Yeah. But yet they didn't feel supported and didn't feel welcome in communities, and that's part of what happens. Um, and we were going the wrong direction, and, and General Sessions said, we're going to prosecute these violent offenders with guns and we're going to do it aggressively. And we saw that trend actually plateau. And then we removed that aggressive prosecution. And what's happened is it, it's gone up and what saw the numbers in Birmingham, right? I mean, we're three times the normal trend and, you know, uniquely one of the things that when people look at the, the rates in Birmingham, they were for when we had population a lot higher than it is right now. And from a capital level, it's through the roof. And again, it's one of the reasons why I hope that this effort that we're going to have behind gang legislation, by the way, we're not talking about the Bloods and the Crips. Yeah. I mean, these are local organized groups, typically of young men is what yeah. is really around. And let's create ways to give them a disincentive to engage in using guns to solve their problems, yeah. their, their conflicts. And hopefully that's going to be something that, that the legislature will take up. Yeah. I think mandatory minimums that I can just kind of give you from my perspective, I think <clears throat> in, in a world where um, district attorneys, law enforcement, judges, and, and you know, it's like in that perfect world where people understand the, the balance and all these things, I think mandatory minimums um, can be a bad thing because if a judge is a judge and he's looking at the situation and he sees if there's an exigent circumstance or something that would say, yeah, this does look really bad. That would put you away for a mandatory minimum of 60 months, but there's all these other factors. And so I'm going to give you four years instead of five, right? And a judge has the ability to do that. Well, now they don't. And and what I think is kind of happens with it, the, the downside, I don't disagree with anything you said, is that it turns into almost like a cattle herding where every person's just getting stamped and thrown in for their mandatory minimum. Boom, 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 boom. And it's not getting handled and judged on an individual basis and, and this person's situation and circumstances, the mandatory minimum just takes it out of that and just right. turns you into a number and then starts sending you into the system and you're stuck there. And then where a lot of people complain specifically when it comes to drug offenses, you know, violent crime, things like that. Well, yeah, you can totally see like if you hurt someone else or you cause someone physical harm or you kill someone at the very minimum, you have to get this well, with drugs. Again, if someone gets caught with like 15 pounds of meth and, and you know, an Uzi, Okay, yeah, mm -hmm. but, you know, what you always hear, and you can speak to whether this is myth or not, is, you know, the guy that had a little bit of marijuana on him going to prison for five years, and, and I, so I was in prison in Colorado, the only people that were in prison in Colorado were people who had like 20 pounds or, you right. know, stuff like that, um, but I've seen, and again, it's always the thing, you make a rule, someone's going to go find the exception, right? And they're going to find this one guy who had like, you know, like a, like a little bit of residue of cocaine in a bag and he's doing 50 years and, you know, whatever. But <clears throat> what, how do you see kind of mandatory minimums in, in that light for like, say, drug charges versus violent offenses and maybe the myth of the guy going to jail for yeah, five let me, years? Yeah, let me deal with the last one because sure. I think it's, it's perpetuated by the left and it's completely false. Yeah. 
And that is there's people sitting out there for a dime bag of marijuana in our prison system. Yeah. All right. Not true at all. And if you look at right now, I think it's 83% of those in our prison system are there for violent offenses. 17% are for nonviolent. Um, that roughly the breakdown that 10% of those that are in prison totally are there for drug offenses. Those people to be able to get there, we have sent mandatory sentencing guidelines that are presumptive on certain crimes. And those are going to be people that are not first time problematic folks. Yeah. These have been folks that have been frequent flyers in our system. And so to be able to get to prison as a nonviolent offender, you got to work hard to get there. Yeah. You know, violent offenses, a little different story. Yeah. But nonviolent, very, very different. And so when, you know, this uproar over parole, for example, yeah. or this idea of kind of what we're dealing with structurally there and inside the wire, the reality is that we're dealing with a very violent population. Yeah. Uh, and to some extent, you know, this again, a little bit of a tangent, you know, one of the things that why the prison construction is so important and it's important for inmate and guard safety, both let's yeah. make that clear is that we have a disproportionate amount of dormitory housing with a violent population compared to the national norm and completely different than say be the federal Bureau of prisons. Yeah. And so the goal of these new facilities is to bring that ratio back to a more manageable level. Yeah. Um, you know, it helps us, you know, internally to have newer structures to deliver those services in prison that we need to be, whether it be on mental health care, physical care, rehabilitation on drug abuse and what have you, we'll be able to do that better with these new facilities. But also from a safety standpoint, understanding who our population is, we just have a structure that allows that to take place yeah. uh, even even better. And so a little bit aside, but but going back a little bit to, to the mandatory minimum question, you know, these are not blanketly applied in every situation. Yeah. You know, there there are certain thresholds that you have to get to. And the one the one I think wild card here, um, because you know, most of our, our drug offenses are really defined by weight. Yeah. That kind of tells us, you know, are we, are we beyond possession, personal use? Do we get to distribution? Do we get to trafficking? Fentanyl is that outlier, right? Because whereas, you know, now I'm going to use the colloquialism, you know, we were looking for an eight ball before of methamphetamine, which is a pretty sizable amount. You know, if you had an eight ball of methamphetamine, that's going to kill cities, I mean, it's, you it's mean a, fentanyl? a fentanyl, excuse yeah. me. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's that powerful a drug. Yeah. And so because of its rise and, and look, that lays at the feet of the Biden administration with a porous border, allowing the cartels to just run wild. How do we deal with fentanyl? Because it's so different than how we've historically had to charge other offenses. And the other thing about it, and it's so exponentially more deadly, you know, when I was DA up in Marshall County, they referred to Sand Mountain as Meth Mountain, not yeah. the greatest moniker for tourism, right? I yeah. mean, it's, we want to we want to talk about the lake, not yeah. not that we have meth labs around the corner. Yeah, but you weren't really going to overdose on meth. Yeah, fentanyl is a different story. Yeah, and it's why how we develop policies number one to attack it appropriately on the criminal justice side, and then on the back end. You know, I'm interesting. I'm going uh, when I leave here today to speak at a, a, a conference that deals with the stigma surrounding addiction, yeah. and that we we got to get past that, and we got to encourage people to be able to get help and and understand there's help there, and it, it's it's why that is a is as critical opponent as the criminal justice side is is how are we going to find vehicles to to get people the help that they need, and it's why you know, we didn't really sort of talk about it earlier, but, but the opioid issue has been one that is, is laser focused for me. Um, partly a little bit with, with Bridget's history that I've tried to be pretty yeah. transparent about and saw how, um, big pharma just absolutely perpetuated a myth yeah. that allowed for her to eventually be prescribed. I had never heard of fentanyl before. And that was given to her as a breakthrough pain medicine. You know, it was oh, just wow. it, to now look that. back. I look back; it's insane. Um, but when we're we're examining how do we deal with with that from from a state policy side, 
we better have a picture that's broader than the criminal justice system. Because yeah, police, law enforcement, prosecutors have a role there, but we also got to be doing the other stuff good too. Yeah. And so um, it's why that's been kind of an issue that, that for me really, really passionate about is that, you know, when we had this national opioid settlement, you know, part of my battle was against my colleagues because they were like, oh, we need to divide money based on population. Well, give me a break. Just because you have a thousand people doesn't mean it's the same problem that 500 have in Walker County. Yeah. And, and so, you know, look, the, the AG in, in California, who's now our health and human services secretary, we're not tight, nor the AG in Texas. Yeah. I mean, in, in, uh, in New York, Letitia James is probably not yeah. coming and sending me Christmas cards. Yeah. And I'm okay with that. Um, but it's why I push for this intensity model to say, yeah. let's, let's evaluate prescribing rates. Let's evaluate opioid use disorder diagnosis. Let's look at overdose deaths and, and let's target the money where it needs to go. And it's why I didn't participate in the national settlement. You know, it was one of four, I think, states that said no. And I'll, I don't mind telling you, I went home at night going, oh, my gosh, have I done the right thing here? You yeah. know, this is a lot of money that I've said no to. But yet I felt like Alabama wasn't being treated fairly. Yeah. And what we found is that, that we have recovered far more than we would have ever gotten. And we've truncated the time period in which that money's coming in because we were willing to stand up and fight. Yeah. And, and, and part of the reason why, honestly, I think I was able to do that is a little bit of watching someone you love struggle here, yeah. but also as a as a prosecutor, understanding the global impact that we're facing from opioids as well. And you know, people aren't dying from overdose of of you know uh, hydrocodone, yeah. it, but what we do know is that that person that get addicted to hydrocodone is much more likely to be that one that goes to heroin and fentanyl. Yeah. And those are the people that, that we're losing. And so if we can change some of the prescribing patterns over here, which Alabama's done, and, and I'm glad of that, but we got more work to do, then we do, again, a better job on the back end of keeping people away from that. Um, but, you know, it's one from – go back to kind of how I even launched into this, this tangent – is fentanyl itself – is really, I think, the greatest challenge that we have from a policy perspective yeah. in deciding how do we charge it, how do we hold accountable, and then what are we doing in community to be able to deal with it. And one of the things that's really good about the settlement that we've gotten is that we now have resources that otherwise we weren't going to have to attack this particular problem. And one of the things that, that we attempted to do, the, we learned from tobacco, and you got to learn from, I guess, your mistakes, is that Lots of money still coming into the state for tobacco that was designed solely to help with the reduction in smoking. That was what it was supposed to do. But, it's, I mean, it's been filling potholes and yeah. and building bridges and doing whatever. That would have anything to do with what the money came in. And so while I have acknowledged that I'm not an appropriator and I'm going to give that money into the general fund, rightfully so, for the state to distribute, I need to have some guardrails around it. And it needs to be Define to how do we abate the nuisance that has been created as a result uh, of opioids. And I use the word nuisance. That's a technical legal term. Really beyond that, to, to abate yeah. the tragedy yeah. that has taken place here as a result of that. Man, I've got so much I want to cover with you. We can end up doing like a three-hour Joe Rogan episode here. Yeah. Um, what's, what's really interesting to me, and, and again, I when I was out selling drugs, doing drugs, fentanyl, was that wasn't, even, wasn't a thing, right? Mm-hmm. And so... What I found very interesting about it is, is, you know, if, if you're going to be a profitable business person, be it, you know, black market selling drugs or, you know, doing business the right way, you don't want to kill the people that are buying your product. Right. And so it's a very strange thing that, that this has come on the way that it has and people are dying. And, and obviously, you know, if you're involved in illegal activity and selling drugs, your scruples aren't exactly that of, you know, and, 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 but there's no way that I would want to be out selling something that would kill someone, you know, even when I was doing that. And it's just, it's you know, mind boggling to me. Yeah. And here's the people lose this a little bit perspective. You know, people that are using drugs ultimately develop tolerance. It's why yeah. they're looking for the better and, yeah. and greater high. And so the, the population at most risk for overdose are those folks that have gotten clean. Yeah. Are those folks that have been incarcerated for a period of time and they basically have detoxed. But yet when they relapse, which is 
generally a part of recovery, and yeah. we know that, that they're using those same levels that yeah. they were using before that the body was tolerant to that no longer is. And so one of the reasons why that. one of the reasons why we see that as kind of the leading category of individuals who die from overdose is because they don't recognize that their body's different than it was before. And so one of the things that I've attempted to encourage with policymakers right now is that some of this money that's coming in, let's find ways to target that population, those that are coming out of jail, those that are in recovery, and a part of it is what can we do to give them resources to be able to help them. And I'll tell you, talked a little bit, I think I used the word epiphany earlier. This, if I use it twice in an hour, that's more than I use it, use it yeah. in a week, right? But, um, you know, naloxone is one of the things saving lives, Narcan, that people have. Yeah. And, and I don't mind telling you that coming from the prosecutor world tend to kind of have black and white view is when I first heard about naloxone, it's like, well, that's just enabling. Yeah. You know, I, I why don't, why don't I want to give somebody something that they know if I use heroin or if I use fentanyl, I can, I can get somebody to give it to me and come back. And I was sitting next to a doctor and we were talking about it. And he said, and I was, I was kind of sharing that story. And he said, look, I can't save somebody who's dead. And I was like, oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I get it. And, and so it's why, you know, do we find ways that naloxone is easier to be obtained by those family members of yeah. somebody coming out of jail or somebody that's coming out of treatment? Or do we find opportunities for somebody to get Vivitrol that, yeah. you know, allows for there to be this sort of body's sort of fight against opioids coming in or rejection of those opioids? And it's why I've really encouraged our policy folks right now in the legislature that have the ability to do it. Let's be creative about it. Let's try to make sure we can identify those things that work because there's resources now to be able to do it. And let's make sure we're doing it in the areas that need it the most. I mean, we got good data that tells us kind of where we ought to target. And one of the things that I was able to accomplish, what I couldn't do and, and lost in the fight at the national level, the the local groups that likewise are getting money, we've been able to distribute that money based on an intensity model. Not yeah. just kind of how big you are, but let's look at those criteria I was describing yeah. earlier, and let's make sure that we're getting the funds there. The challenge, I think, for us, and the thing that I'm hoping that we do correctly, is that we use the money wisely. The other thing that that sort of that I did not want to do is create some bureaucracy yeah. around this, but to have allow the money to go in and have an understanding that, frankly, the most successful people in this regard that are dealing with the issue or our nonprofits, and, and particularly in our faith-based communities, because I was very active in something called Celebrate Recovery. Um, yeah. You know, one of the things that I, I wanted to send a message as, as a prosecutor is that, yeah, I'm going to hold you accountable, but I'm going to support you in getting better. Yeah. And try to those, those two are not inconsistent missions. And so hopefully we can find ways to support the nonprofits that are doing great stuff. And I will argue you can't help someone unless you hold them accountable. Mm. I'm just telling you, like, and that's the one thing I will – preach and, and dead on the money. If you don't have to face your consequences, you will never get better because what happens is what I believe is, 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 is at the root of drug addiction. We'll jump into ESG and move on to the next segment. But what I believe is at the root of drug addiction is that people, they, they make poor decisions and those poor decisions create consequences. And these consequences begin to pile up. And as a person, maybe you have low self-esteem, maybe you have issues, whatever. And you look at this mountain of consequences that you've created and in order to live a productive life, you got to get up over or through that mountain of consequences and you don't want to. So you turn over here and you begin to use drugs because you don't want to feel this anymore. And so you take drugs and then you don't feel that anymore. And you're like, Ooh, and then you get sober again and it's still there. And then you just continue farther at some point in your life, you're going to have to plow through or over that mountain of mm -hmm. consequences that you created. And every time you use drugs or participate in illegal activity or whatever, that mountain just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and harder and harder and harder. But until someone squares you up with that mountain of consequences and says, look, you can do this. And, and then the, and the proper way is to say, you can't do this, but with Christ, you can do this. Right. And all of a sudden with Christ, that mountain gets really, really small and you push through that. And then when you take someone who has lived that way and then they begin to start to take steps up or through that mountain and all of a sudden they develop a level of self-confidence in their abilities and specifically with men, <clears throat> when you teach them a vocational skill set and they can mm -hmm. work with their hands and they can provide for a family and all of a sudden they 
they, they come to the knowledge of this is why I was created and this is, this is good. Um, and then they keep going and keep going. And all of a sudden that mountain is in their rear view mirror. There's nothing that can stop them. Yeah. Quick story. Yes. Um, I love stories. We had a young lady arrested for, uh, drug possession. I mean, she was strung out bad. I mean, bad. I remember seeing her when she did her initial appearance and I mean, you could tell she was in a bad spot. We got her into our drug court program, which is some of the best things going. Unfortunately, though, Alabama's got policies really discouraging that for mm-hmm. reasons we can get into later if you want to. Yeah. But um, but we also implemented Christ-based recovery programs as appropriate for somebody that's participating yeah. in that. They didn't have to go to NA or AA. They could go to Celebrate Recovery. And so about six months into her time, I was working at the CR that, that uh, was at our church, and she walked up to me. And frankly, I didn't recognize her. And she goes— can I talk to you? I was like, sure, sure. And she reintroduced herself and said, can I, can I tell you something? And it's like, yeah. She said, um, I want to thank you for the fact I got arrested. Now that doesn't happen a lot, Brian. It just yes. never does. Um, I was like, okay, why? And she said, because if I hadn't been arrested, I wouldn't be here. And if I wasn't here, I wouldn't know him. Amen. Now that told me, something changed and something was working. And it's exactly what you were talking about earlier, that accountability gave the ability to change. Yep. So I'll, I'll hit your story with the story. Yeah. <laughs> we're never going to get to the stuff I said we would. That's all right. So um, when I was arrested, <clears throat> I was like one of the most wanted criminals in Colorado Springs. I was absolute, you know, on rampage. And there was a group that was tasked with arresting me. It was the the fugitive task force was part of what they did. And I was a fugitive and also the, the crime reduction unit uh, in Colorado Springs methamphetamines in the early 2000s was, was, you know, was an absolute epidemic and property crimes was a big piece of what would happen. People involved in meth would steal things. And so they had this unit that was dedicated to reducing crime by basically finding these people like me mm-hmm. uh, that were promulgating it. And, and then I was a fugitive. And so they were also tasked with that. And it was a uh, El Paso County, which is Colorado Springs, El Paso County, and also CSPD, Colorado Springs Police Department, joint venture effort with federal funding. So they didn't have the jurisdictional restrictions. They had plenty of money. Anyway, it's this group, and it was head, headed up by a guy named Sergeant O'Driscoll. And this dude was amazing, okay? He was a very respectable, good man. And I just noticed that. And we would have run-ins, and my house would get raided, um, you know, in the, the old joke about cops always shooting people's dogs, my pit bulls, you know, went after him and they actually didn't shoot my dogs, which I was thankful for. Right. But they, they obeyed the law in order to uphold it. There was another group of cops that I won't go into. They were wild West Yosemite Sam style cops and they would break laws and then they would just cover it up in courtrooms and stuff like that. This guy and his team, they did it right. And I always respected them and we would, you know, would go back and forth. Like I said, they raided my house and, and we, 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 Cultivated a very strange relationship from, you know, me being one of the chief people that they were after. And I would get out and, and get out of get after it again or whatever. Well, when they finally got me, it was June 19th, 2007, repelling out of a, a third story window. A fugitive task force was there, plus another 50 cops because I'd gotten away from them so many times. Right. And and so I, I repel out the window. Boom. There they are. And I drop three stories down. They cuff me and put me in the back and take me to uh, reception in the El Paso County Criminal Justice Center. And I'm sitting there and Sergeant O'Driscoll comes in and he looks at me and he says, when are you going to change? By the way, you still remember his name. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's, that's amazing. Oh my gosh. Yes. And I yeah. want to get in touch with him, but uh, he's now a Lieutenant, but um, he comes up to me and he says, Brian, when are you going to change? And I'm like, I'm, uh, you know, he goes, no, seriously. He says, I've been doing this a long time. And he says, too, I've never seen anyone jump out of a third story window. Like that was crazy. <laughs> right. You owe, you owe me some gas money because I've been chasing you all over the state for the right. last few months. Um, but in all seriousness, I've, I've never, I've been doing this a long time and there's something that's different about you and you need to change. And at this time I, I, I thought I was going to do the rest of my life in prison. Wow. Right. And so he, that touch by him coming in there and taking the time out of his day to come and tell me that I get about three years into my prison stay and I write him a letter and tell him, thank you. I said, thank you. And thank your team said for saving me. I said, you didn't run into a burning building and drag me out. But I said, you still, by doing your job and doing it in a way that was respectable and that you upheld the law and by obeying it, um, you you set an example for me and you removed me from the situation I was in. Um, and and thank you for that. And so he and I actually began to correspond with each other. He got wow. approval to do that. And he was just giving me like manly advice. Like when you get out, you need to do this, that, and the other. Sheriff Terry Makita actually sent me a card saying they'd never had anyone do this before. And he was like, wow, this is amazing. 
And then the story that ends up not as cool is that Terry McKeita ended up in prison. So, <laughs> yeah. And, <laughs> but uh, to end on that terrible note, but O'Driscoll did not, right? And he, I mean, life changing thing there. That's, that's an amazing story. Cause yeah. you know, I mean, look, everybody sees the other side. Yeah. We don't always hear that or kind of what I was sharing with you a yeah. second ago that, you know, the criminal justice system changes the lives of victims but they do have offenders as well. Yeah. And we have that opportunity. Um, and, and anyway, that's, yeah. that's so cool that, that, uh, and again, the fact that you still remember his name and had that, that interaction with him and f- that motivated him yeah. to continue doing the job the right way, because you know this is a critical point. I can sit here and tell you, I can be that voice for law enforcement and I treasure that opportunity. But when I'm talking to them, I also say you're held to a higher standard. Amen. And the ends don't justify the means that the constitution's there for a reason. Yeah. We have that as our guardrails. And if we're not doing our jobs the right way, then we lose credibility completely, not only as officers of the law, yeah. but what it is that we're attempting to do in communities and to be able to integrate and partner with communities. We have to have their trust yeah. and we have to have their support. And us doing things the right way are critical in being able to make that happen. Amen. All right, guys. Well, we're going to end the show on that note. We didn't get to ESG. We didn't get to some other things. I guess that means we're going to have to have you back on at some we'll, point. We'll do it. All right. We'll do it. All right. Well, that's going to end the show today, guys. Um, but we've got another segment. And the way that you can get access to that segment is by becoming a member, joining the fight, and supporting the work we're doing at 1819 News. We're going to jump into the abortion pill, and we'll talk a little bit about Uh, the poor response to COVID that the state of Alabama had and what we can do to rectify it. Jump in, join the fight, and enjoy content like that. And, as always, put your trust in God and keep your powder dry.